This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. One of the genres of podcasts that is very, very popular is true crime. And 20 years ago, I talked to a journalist and author called Don Hale, who had investigated a true crime. He told the story in a book called Town Without Pity. Um, I'm going to play the whole interview, the whole conversation as it happened. I started by saying there had been a miscarriage of justice. Stephen Downing worked in a cemetery. A simple man, um, not a complicated youth. He was only 17 at the time. He was employed to cut the grass, tend the way the gravestones. One day, a woman was murdered in that graveyard, and Stephen was declared to be the murderer. He was sent to jail for life. He didn't do it. He's now out. Who got him out? Well, Don Hale, who edited the local paper, was instrumental in this. And he's written the story in a book called Town Without Pity. So Stephen Downing is now out. Does this mean he's now been officially declared to be innocent? Not really. It's one of these strange anomalies. His conviction was quashed, which is all we can hope for really at the appeal. But they didn't actually declare him innocent at the appeal. But I think what's helping now is that the police have reopened the case. And again, this takes the emphasis off and say, well, there must be somebody else responsible for it. But the book almost you know, tells the story of, of the whodunit. The murder took place when? In September 1973. A long time ago? Oh, yes. You weren't even in the area then? No. And who was the woman? Wendy Sewell. Yeah, she was a local housewife, uh, typist. That was a sort of impression given to the court at the time. But obviously through my inquiries I've been able to find out that she was something completely different. Like what? Very promiscuous. She had an, uh, numerous affairs with a number of local personalities, some very important, very influential people in the area, including, it was alleged, the uh, senior police officer. So there's many reasons why people wanted to keep the lid on this. You were working away uh, in the feverish but sometimes concerned with minutiae world of local mm. papers. Yeah. So how do you get dragged into it? Just by chance, really. Um, I was the editor of the local paper. The Downing family lived in Bakewell, about eight miles away from our office, and they came to me. Uh, they said that they'd had an anonymous phone call to say some fresh evidence had come to light, and they'd sent it on to me, and also the editor of the Star. Well, I'd just come back from holiday and made inquiries. I couldn't find anything. So I was fascinated by their story. It seemed incredible. They were saying their son had been in jail 21 years then for a murder he didn't commit. Um, they'd, all, they'd made one or two appeals before, and they called for my assistance. Well, I didn't want to get sucked into it particularly, but it, it certainly whet the appetite, so I went back to see them, and they started to reveal some of the evidence that uh, had not been put before the jury. And for me, the story comes alive when they show you the clothes that mm. their son was wearing on that day. How old was he? He was 17. 17. Mm. And uh, this murder happened in a churchyard? Yes. And he was um, sort of mowing it and looking He was like a it. grave digger come or job man there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't academic? No. No, he's, um, he was classed as backward. He had very low intelligence, uh, reading age of an 11-year-old. He could barely read or write himself. He was extremely embarrassed about that. He was a loner. He had very few friends. Okay, but just from your experience, this they sound like a lovely family. They are, yes. Uh, and they show you 
these clothes and what did mm. you see? Well, first of all, I've dealt with murder cases before but never known the clothes actually returned to the family. I thought that was quite unusual. And the father came to me with this box of, of clothing, just tipped it out on the kitchen table in front of me. And I thought, this is incredible, what is he showing me here? And they give him the rings, the wristwatch, and various personal things that were on his fingers back immediately. But the clothes came back several months uh, later. But there was a T-shirt there, and there were four little spots on it. You can't tell from the naked eye. It was only because there was a yellow forensic crayon that you could actually spot this. And there was some blood on the, the left knee of it, which was congealed blood. But from the naked eye, it's very difficult to see this. Now, this was after a very frenzied attack. Somebody was supposedly admitted to, to attacking this woman on over a long period. It just didn't seem to add up. Was it at that point you thought, because you, you dedicated so many hours and mm. sort of years of your life to this, was that the point where you thought, I've got to do something? Well, it's one of them. I mean, I saw also the scene of crime photographs. I saw the pictures of the, the victim. And I couldn't believe that somebody with his sort of background could be responsible for that. But again, I started making inquiries, just basic inquiries. I got a list of people who had been witnesses at the time that hadn't been called. And I wondered why and what they had to say. And I, I'd literally just parked the car uh, on the estate, went knocking on one or two doors, and everyone said, oh, come in, thank goodness you're doing something about it, saying he's serving time for somebody else, and giving me then the name of p the people they thought were responsible. It just seemed so incredible. Why did the police pick him up in the first place? Just because he was there? Well, he worked there. That was his place of work. He'd just come back from his lunch, and as he came back, he saw something on, on the lower footpath. So he went across and then found it was the half-naked... Uh, body, battered body of a woman. She wasn't dead. He turned her over to see if she was alive. She raised herself up and shook her head like a dog. Um, he panicked to a certain extent, really, ran off to fetch some help, and within minutes there's assistance coming back. But she'd actually moved then from where he'd found her to about 20 yards across onto some graves. And four or five workmen then almost just stood aghast as she staggered to her feet and then fell off, fell over and, and cracked her head. And I think that's what actually finished her off. So the police are called, mm -hmm. um, Stephen thinks, well, what does he think, there's no point in running away, because it... Oh, no, no, he went to them, he told her he'd found her, um, his hands were covered in blood because he'd turned her over, he had one or two bits of blood stains, say, to his knee where he'd knelt next to her, and it was congealed blood, it, wa it wasn't fresh, and he admitted, you know, I'd found her. Um, he, met, he asked some basic questions, the, the officer, about this, and this is before he'd gone to the, the victim to see if she was still all right which was quite incredible. Um, and then, after a while, he let Stephen carry on working, and they were actually moving asbestos sheets, which were fairly light-coloured, you know, almost white, chalky-coloured. So they've allowed him to contaminate other items which are being shared then by workmen. Um, the ambulance is called. Again, there's a considerable delay from Stephen first calling for assistance to actually medical assistance arriving. And again, this could have been crucial to uh, the survival of the victim. And Stephen signed a confession at some point earlier. Yes, he, senior officers uh, turned up. They, um, they knew she was badly injured. She was taken away to hospital. And they asked him to accompany them to the police station, help with the inquiries. Standard practice, really. He offered to do so. At no stage did they ever say, look, we think you've had something to do with this. You're a suspect or whatever. He volunteered. He went there. He spent uh, nine hours with them, uh, with detectives just continually questioning him the nice guy, the heavy guy, the usual sort of thing. And they said to him, look, Stephen, you know, it's a GBH, this. It's an assault. 
um, just admit this, you know, and you can go home. And this was sort of the drip, this was the pressure on him all the time. He was naive, he was backward, he was denied access to a solicitor, parent, friend or whatever. And they, parents went down seven or eight times and were turned away each time, said, no, look, he'd be home soon, he's just helping with inquiries, just give us another half hour, an hour or something, he'd be all right. And, um, you know, of course, in the end, the pressure got to him and he, he made this confession, or basically he signed a script that was given to him by the police. But through my investigations, I was able to find out, although we have to say, yes, he signed the confession, we can't deny that. He still says to this day, it was made in, uh, made in pencil, he was given a ballpoint pen to sign it. And then they read it back to him. He couldn't read it, well, so they read it back to him, so it could have said anything really. But again, my inquiries have shown that what he did sign for couldn't have happened. There was no way it could have happened that way, the facts just didn't add up. And so he was a detective, so I, I had to turn detective if you like against the police to find out uh, who the other suspects uh, were at the time why other witnesses have been turned away and actually piece together everything rather like a, a large jigsaw. But when Stephen tells you what happened on mm. that day and what happened when he came back to the scenes, it, it seems crucially different. Oh yes, there's so many anomalies with it and again this was what, uh, what made it interesting for me. I mean I set out initially to try and prove him guilty because after all this time I thought, well look, something needs to be done about this. He's either done it or he hasn't, there's, there's no two ways about it. If we can prove he did it, that's the end of the myth really. But the more you looked into this, the more um, items, evidence came to light that showed that he more has been framed for this and there were definitely others responsible. Like what? I mean there's a, running, there's a man running away. Well initially, from the, the first bus arriving there, this suspicious character seen hanging around by the cemetery gates. Um, they kept looking at the watch. They're obviously waiting for somebody. There was a, a suspicious character in a van noted by several people who then went to park at the back of the cemetery. Originally, they said there were two men in the van. Uh, many people saw just one man in the, in the van. So where did the other man go to? Um, there was a, a, a key witness, Jane Atkins, who came along uh, later. She only came on after the trial because she read in the paper that he'd, he'd committed this uh, murder, they said, at lunchtime. Now, she knew that Stephen had left the area at that time. She always thought the murder probably happened later that afternoon. And then she came forward. And her evidence was, was crucial in terms of she saw the victim with her arms round another man and Stephen entering, uh, leaving by the far gate. So she was still alive after he'd left. And I was also able to identify at least two or three other witnesses that had seen her alive again after Stephen had left. But your book starts... You're in your newspaper office and someone rings and says, hey, Don, there's a big fire up mm. in a farmhouse or something? Yeah, yeah, isolated sort of farmhouse, which happens, you know, quite regularly. And you and your dog go up and have a look? <laughs> well, I was about to, 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 well, I had sort of knocked off. I live fairly close to the office. I thought, well, I'll kill two birds with one stone, pick the dog up, we'll go up that way, we'll have a walk in the fields and, and see what, what it's all about. So that was the simple uh, idea. We drove up there. There was no sign of smoke, there was no sign of flames, it was going dark. And obviously, in an area like that, which is fairly remote, if there's any sort of blaze, you can see it for miles. Um, obviously, I thought then it's a hoax. I turned my car around and you turned to come back. But there was a, a big lorry behind me. As I turned, he then turned. And then I thought, well, OK, he's perhaps just gone the wrong way or whatever. It's used quite frequently during the day by heavy goods vehicles, but not at night. As I went down this, this lane, which is about four and a half, five miles long, it's a narrow sort of lane, 
it's it's fast, it's undulating. This lorry speeds up and he's right in my back seat almost. And it's going dark, the headlights are blazing. Uh, and next thing I hear is a smack into the back of the, the car. You know, it jolts you forward, you wonder what the heck's going on. I can't go anywhere, just a few farmhouse lights in the distance. And it becomes a chase. I was trying to speed up to lose him, but doing more than 55, 60 miles an hour is impossible. You lose control. Your headlights are bouncing on the, on the, the track. And he's hitting me again and again. And then the, the horn's going. And it's almost like something from a, a thriller film, almost, um, with the tanker and things. And I, I, I'm thinking, this cannot be true. You know, where can I go? I tried to lose him at the junction. Uh, he, he didn't fall for it. We carry on straight ahead. And I'm seeing him on a walkie-talk. I see a dim light in his cab each time we come away from the bang. So obviously somebody else is involved. As I go over the brow of the hill, there's another truck across the road blocking it. And I thought, this is it, curtains, you know, good night. And fortunately, two or three years before that, I'd nearly had an accident in the same spot. A tractor came out in front of me from a field without looking. And as I'm just thinking, literally two, three hundred metres to go, I see a reflector on the gatepost ahead of me. And I thought, well, this is it, now or never. Just turned in, hoping the gate would be open, etc. And I just heard this enormous bang, and I thought, oh, he's hit me from the back again. But it was just the wing mirror had caught it at a sharp angle. I'm suddenly in a muddy field, black, and I'm just trying to steer it round. And I see him go whizzing past, jam his air brakes on, and then it just slides into the other truck. So I come round, spin out of the field, and back where I've come. It just seemed so incredible that somebody was so determined to keep me quiet. And they, had they rung you in the office and say, keep off this uh, downy affair? Oh yes, I mean I'd had several death threats, uh, threats of bombs, intimidation. I mean before I wrote the first story in the newspaper, uh, it took me four months to write the first story, I wanted to be sure of facts. We'd had two, two firebomb attacks on the office, we'd had a brick through the window and two hit and run attempts. The chase with the HTV came after the second or third story. But again people, or certain people, were so determined that the truth should not come out. Do you know who these people are now? Oh yes, yes. Proving it 100% is difficult because they tend to cover the tracks fairly well. And you're talking of one person in particular with some associates who have muddied the waters over the years. But what this book identifies now quite clearly is that five people were in and around the scene of crime at the time. Stephen wasn't. Um, now whether it was set up to, to blame it on him, it's difficult to say. It gives that impression. But out of those five people, three have deliberately lied. They've given false alibis and two have never been interviewed to this day. So it's an excellent start for the police. That was Don Hale talking to me in 2002 about his book Town Without Pity, subtitled The Fight to Clear Stephen Downing of the Bakewell Murder. Town Without Pity 2 was published in 2016. So the story continues. There was a headline in, in a major British paper only this year. So it really is a, a true life crime, true story, which continues. This is the Author Archive. It's the podcast. I'm David Freeman.